Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic. Last time we got really excited about some Knights of the Old Republic movie news before continuing our journey through the KOTOR comics and talking a lot about nukes in Star Wars. Now in episode 15, we keep pushing through the KOTOR comics as we encounter frank discussions of racial, genetic, and species hierarchies in Star Wars and the morality of allowing governments to hold the power hold the power of super weapons in their hands. Uh, no, seriously, we told you it was getting into social issues real fast. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. Uh, the corrections. Uh, no, not that Jonathan Franzen novel that no one, including me, has ever finished. Um, we need to make some brief corrections to uh, episode 14. Uh, first, while discussing the reports about a possible Knights of the Old Republic movie, we said that uh, Leda Caligridis, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, would be, uh, quote, the second credited female in Star Wars film history and the first since Leah Brackett, uh, in quote, in The Empire Strikes Back in 1980. Uh, we meant the second credited female writer and also uh, meant to acknowledge Marsha Lucas's uncredited writing help with the series. Uh, a quick note on how the sausage is made here at the podcast, although I write the scripts for the episodes earlier. Uh, the news gets added later, obviously, because we add it when it comes out. And uh, my writing isn't always clear on that. Uh, second, as we discussed nukes a great deal in episode 14, and we noted they were introduced with the Mandalorians, but in looking it up since then, I now realize that they were introduced literally alongside the Mandalorians in Tales of the Jedi, the Sith War. I think they were... I think they, we even mentioned it uh, briefly in an earlier episode, uh, maybe episode 9. That... On to the canon. So we are talking Knights of the Old Republic comic, the Knights of Anger, written by John Jackson Miller, published in 2007. It's a three-issue arc. Um, when we began the Knights of the Old Republic comic, we said the series broadly covered two stories. The first is the efforts to clear Zane's name. Began in the first arc and is obviously still ongoing, but will resolve before the end of the series. The second story, involving the mysterious and cruel history of the Arcanian offsuits, and specifically both Jariel and Camper's pasts, begins in earnest in this arc and will carry us through the final issue. Knights of Anger covers issues uh, 16 through 18 of 50. Our characters, um, we got returning. We have uh, Jariel, Camper, LB, Roland Dyer, Zane, Karth Onassi, Admiral Saul Kareth, Reyna Tay, the Four Dead Padawans, Arco Adaska, E.G. Vam, Lucian Gray, and Tazan. In addition, we're meeting Zadawi, a fiery young Arcanian offshoot who works in the mines by day and wishes to rebel against the oppressive pureblood Arcanians. She provides Jariel with shelter and teaches her about the history and bitter plight of the offshoots. We also have Captain Dallin Morvis, son of the founder of the Coruscant Financial Exchange and a senator from Chandrilla. Morvis is another aristocrat playing at war and making things difficult for everyone around him, though mostly just his nemesis for Karath's attention, Karthanasi. 
Um, eventually, he shows that he's not a bad person despite being born to such privilege, though we've got a long way to go. He has an absolutely fabulous mustache, however. A big Starklighter would be proud. Locations. Uh, returning to Arcania, Telerath, uh, Terrace, and what's left of Sirocco. Uh, new locales include the Arcanian Legacy, a hospital, monitoring facility, and the mobile flagship and headquarters of Adascorp which, uh, in case you don't remember, is the largest uh, corporation and uh, basically holds all the, pulls all the weight on uh, the planet Arcania. Uh, it's a, mostly a medical corporation. Uh, much of the action in this arc takes place abo- aboard the flagship. Uh, the capital ship was originally conceived of and uh, built to move a DAS corp about, avoiding the destruction caused by the Great Sith War, though it eventually became a hub of Arcanian culture containing a university, symphony hall, and bleeding-edge scientific facilities. Of course, it's all a front for Arco Adaska's dick-measuring contest, but it's still a cool-looking ship. Uh, the other place is the Amenoth system, uh, a system on the edge of the inner rim that contained a no known inhabited worlds and a small dying star. Uh, nothing to see here, folks. Uh, so why are we even talking about it? Um, timeline 3963 seems to take place uh, contemporaneously with the last arc, uh, Days of Hate. Until now, we have been purposely vague about Arcanian offshoots specifically, and physical descriptions of most beings generally, because they are largely inconsequential and just at length. But due to the racial and class dynamics discussed within the offshoot storyline, it's necessary to be specific about their look and genetics. In the story, Arcanians, like Master Arca, even in the days of the Old Republic, were famed throughout the galaxy for their scientific research and discoveries. However, they were also known to play fast and loose with ethics to achieve their scientific goals, caring little for the moral considerations that accompany discovery. Later, sometime prior to uh, 3964, Arcanians, believing pure-blooded Arcanians were above general labor and seeking cheaper sources to exploit, began genetic experimentation on their own blood, mixing it with that of other races such as humans and Cephi. They eventually created Arcanian offshoots, a genetic subspecies of pure-blood Arcanians and long considered inferior by their creators, a problem in need of solution, some believed. Offshoots have five human-like fingers, ivory-white skin, human-like rounded ears, and eyes with pupils, which easily distinguish them from pure-blood Arcanians, who have four claw-like fingers, a range of skin toes, though usually olive, pointy ears, and pupilless eyes, as though they were atrophied from blindness. These physical characteristics make the offshoots fast targets for discrimination of many varieties. Offshoots also suffer from numerous medical conditions that seem to be genetically tied to the offshoots in some way. Also, Jariel has stark blue tattooing under her right and left eyes, as well as on her upper right bicep, which seems to be something only she has, not common among all offshoots. On to the story. Ronate is back on Terrace as it is being invaded by the Mandalorians and Sith. She rushes to the Jedi Tower amidst flames only to find Zane Carrick and the four dead Padawans all wielding red lightsabers and standing over four dead bodies covered in the red spacesuits from the Rogue Moon prophecy. Rana is confused. The Masters abandoned the Tower and Terrace long ago. 
or some time ago, but this isn't her vision, it's Zane's. Uh, she remembers his words from the end of commencement when he said that one member of the five masters who confessed would live. As Zane and his fellow Padawans move in for the final kill, Ron is awakened by a medical droid. She's on her ship in her own quarters, far from Terrace, on a mission for the Chancellor. Awakening from this nightmare, Rana knows that the only way to stop these new visions is to kill Zane Carrick and also Jarael too. Aboard the Last Resort, Jarael and Roland are having little luck with the ailing camper. He's responded some to the treatments administered by Roland, but he's still delirious and his pulse continues to race. And come to think of it, Roland seems to know a lot about being a doctor for a Mando warrior. He claims he picked it up on the battlefield as a medical student before joining the Mandalorian cause, but that uh, seems really convenient nonetheless. As the ship nears Arcania, Roland suggests calling a Daskorp, a well-known medical conglomerate, to help Camper, but Jariel flatly declines. A Daskorp is the group Camper had been hiding from for decades, and he'd rather die than accept their help. Still, they need assistance from an Arcanian doctor, and Jariel leaves Roland and the alien Camper on the last resort as she travels home to Arcania for the first time. She has taken a small sample of Camper's blood, intending to visit an Arcanian hospital to have it tested to determine the cause of his sickness. Her homecoming isn't very pleasant, however, as she's immediately noticed and placed on a train for the work camps, like all the other offshoots on the planet, despite claiming to need medical aid and being new to the world. Jarile, despite all of her warrior prowess and courage, is no match for total societal discrimination or culture shock of this scale. She's on a strange world, knows no one, and only went there in the first place to get help for her, her, her dying father figure. Also, as soon as she landed, she was put on a train for an actual work camp due solely to her appearance and species. Uh, thankfully, another young offshoot takes pity, takes pity on Jarile. Zadali introduces, introduces her to the perennially frozen Arcania and the especially cold mining camps where the offshoots are open-air prisoners. Zadawi explains some of their history of discrimination by the pure by pure-blood Arcanians against the offshoots. We meet Zadawi's father and grandmother and learn a little more about Jarile's past. She didn't stay with her birth parents very long, and her given name is Edessa, which Zadawi's grandmother tells her means triumph in the Arcanian language. Zadawi, despite resistance from her family, wants to fight against the Arcanian pure-blood oppression of offshoots, but must do so quietly. Uh, so she chooses to get one over on her oppressors by helping Jarile sneak into the capital, Adaskopolis, Disguised as a pure-blood Arcanian, complete with fake contacts, claw gloves, and blush to make her appear normal. In the capital, Jarile goes directly to, the, to an Adascorp medical facility, even though she refused that option on the last resort earlier. It seems she became desperate, or it's a mistake, or she was lying to Roland earlier and was planning to go there all along. Hard to say. Anyway, the assistant immediately notices it as offshoot blood and is alarmed, but Jarrell bribes him. He comes back sometime later to a waiting and frustrated Jarrell and tries to put her off again. She makes to leave, and he tries to stop her before a bunch of armed Arcanian guards come in to beat and arrest Jarrell. However, she saved the last moment by Arak Adaska, the CEO of Adascorp, and probably 
the most well-known pure blood Arcanian in the entire galaxy, who claims he knows why she came and that he can help her. Above, Camper finally comes to long enough to see that Roland has been tending him and that the last resort is being caught in the tractor beam of, an, of a monstrous ship, the Arcanian Legacy. Camper is furious and then sees a message from Adaska and Jariel imploring him to trust the group um, and passes out from the supposed betrayal. Though it's unclear how much of a choice Jariel had in the end. As Camper is rushed into quarantine, Jariel is inconsolable as she has to leave him in the company's hands. The, Ar- the Arcanian guards promptly attack Roland because he's a Mandalorian, but Jarrell speaks up to spare his life, and he's imprisoned on the ship. Adaska explains that while the Arcanian legacy is the roving uh, HQ of Adascorp, conceived of as a means to allow Arcanian culture to escape the ravages of Exarchoon's war, and finally realized under Adaska, it also acts as a world-class medical and research facility, university, arts house, museum, etc. Lord Adaska further claims to be a well-intended man of culture, though says his predecessors were cruel men who treated offshoots poorly, and Camper's mistrust is likely correct. He says that Camper shows the symptoms for Balancor's virus, which lies dormant in offshoots until older age and then renders them quite ill. They rushed into the facility on Arcania right away when they saw Camper's blood sample because he is getting near the point where the virus becomes fatal. After getting a tour, Jarrell gets put up in the penthouse suite and looks on a hollow and looks in on a hollow of Adaska's crony, e.g. Vam tending to a comatose vampir, uh, camper. Uh, Jarael gets upset and worries she shouldn't have brought camper, but Adaska calms her fears. He gives her new clothes, a suite, and time to relax after the tough ordeal and says someone will come by to take a blood sample to check and see if she is infected with Balancor's virus. Are you getting the heavy-handed symbolism that he's a creep yet? Because, yeah, it was there in the comic, too. Jumping back to the wreck of Sir... Sirocco, both of the planet and of the Republic fleet that had attempted to protect it. The Mandalorians are smashing every ship they can. Even Admiral Salkarath's flagship, the Courageous, is jettisoning life pods as they're being boarded by Mandalorian Neo-Crusaders. Karath decides to scuttle the Courageous to prevent Republic resources from falling into enemy hands. His bridge captain, Dalin Morvis, worries this will be the end of their careers, but when faced with your job or your life, buddy, you choose your life every time. The Mandalorians chase them toward the back of the ship, and Karath is pinned and nearly killed by one, but Karth Onassi saves his neck. Karath, Morvis, and Onassi are soon backed up to the brig, which is a choke point they can use, and they grab two guards. Zane is in the brig, but he's been meditating through the entire ordeal. He forces Karath to swear in his rank and honor that he will take Zane with them and not leave him to die before moving... um, from in front of a piece of armor wall plating. Um... He promptly falls down because Zane had unscrewed the screws with the force, a task he had difficulty with under time circumstances, but he had immense time to work through in the brig. They can conveniently get to the hangar where Onassi's personal ship awaits. Zane's lightsaber, coincidentally, was on Karth's ship, and the odd group makes a departure, bound to meet Lucian Dre on Telerath for a prisoner exchange. A few other Republic forces are able to flee Sirocco in the Mandalorian destruction. Back on the Arcanian legacy, Lord Adaska has ascertained the identity of Jarile's Mandalorian friend. 
His armor is well known via Mando propaganda, calling him Roland the Questioner, a true Mandalorian warrior who upheld all his people's ideals and died on Flashpoint, or so both they and the Republic believe. Adaska tries the same song and dance routine about mercy missions with Roland that he used on Jiraiel, but the old Mando ain't having it. He sees through Adaska's lies and wonders why he's spending so much time with Jiraiel. The Arcanian comes clean, saying he needs her for a special project, but nothing more. He's impressed with Roland, though, and gives him free reign of the research deck. Uh, curious that Adaska would offer it to a Mando warrior, though. Most curious. Jariel is awakened sometime later by Ichivim, who gives her another bland update on Camper and nervously answers a few of her questions before disconnecting. We then see that E.G. used this as an excuse to show a now-alive-and-kinda-gray fox-looking camper that Jariel is unharmed, but the old offshoot is furious that they're being lied to. He threatens E.G. because Melancrude virus isn't even a real thing, it's just a story concocted to placate Jariel. Camper was actually sick from mold and other junk in the last resort ventilation systems, he just overlooked it. But E.G. summons three HK series assassination droids and says they... And he says that Jariel's continued safety is contingent on Camper finishing the work he left decades ago, work that only he can complete because he's a very gifted scientist. Are the Rogue One comparisons clear yet? On Telerath, there are planet-wide panics as the people have a good old-fashioned as the people have good old-fashioned bank runs, storming the banks to get their money and leave. Lucian Dre is on world and finds out that the Courageous and the entire Sirocco battle group were decimated, so his rendezvous with Karath is off. He uses a private comm to contact Hazen for instructions. Dre worries that the fall of Telerath will, will mean more of the family's money will be depleted, but Hazen says they've been shorting the markets on the planet for a while due to, I cannot stress this highly enough, Jedi Seers being used for financial predictions to further the Dre Trust assets and the Jedi Covenant's goals. That's right, uh, they had Jedi financial advisors. Uh, Watch Circle Voto, another of the Covenant's many such groups, predicted the fall of Telerath, and besides, they can't rely on the first Watch Circle with Rana being in a murderous rampage and the rest hunting for Zane. But Hazen has other plans for Lucian, sending him to meet with Arco Adaska, who they have learned is summoning certain galactic leaders to a meeting on the Arcanian legacy. Leaders such as the Revanchist leader, the Jedi High Council, Republic Command, etc. Dre will go as a Jedi emissary. Lucian and Adaska know one another well from their family's mutual moneyed histories. But even Lucian is shrewd enough to know that Adaska is a corporate jerk, only out to make himself more credits. Despite this, Lucian goes off to meet the Arcanian legacy in a dead inner rim system called Amanoth. Back at the Adaska Corp flagship, Lord Arak is busy being a nefarious comic villain again. He takes a keen interest in Jariel after she puts on some of the revealing clothes he gave to her and is intrigued by her ears, which are distinctly pointed like an Arcanian pureblood, despite her being an offshoot. He asks about her parents, but Jariel evades the question, saying much of her childhood makes very little sense. Adaska then goes to speak with Camper and confirms Jariel won't be harmed if the old man keeps up his part of the contract they signed long ago. 
E.G. Vam says that Camper remembers how to complete the secret project, and the desk sees the pieces falling into place. He and E.G. coordinate, sending out the last invite to a secret meeting, confirming Hazen's sources, but it needs to come from a more friendly face than either of theirs. He's also irate because none of his flunkies has taken Jariel's blood samples. Again, he's creepy and also evil in some way. Finally, he finds Roland in the medical floors because he has a favor to ask. The questioner has been disrupting Adaska's researchers by reading their battlefield medicine, genetics manuals, even info and pharmacology. Adaska asks about Roland's interest in medicine, but the man though says he just has a hobby in learning new things. And it does seem better than sitting in a brig. Adaska clears the rest out and speaks to Roland, asking him to contact Mandalore the Ultimate with a secret message about a secret meeting in a secret location regarding a secret project. Adaska believes the only way he can truly get Mandalore to come is by having a presumed dead Mandalorian questioner whom he hates do the inviting. In return, Dyer asks for safe passage off the ship and to be allowed to take Jariel, who he seems to fancy. Adaska protests that he needs her, but Roland is far too smart to be fooled by the Arcanian's bullshit. He spoke with Jariel, who told him all about Valencor's virus and Camper's current medically induced coma. But Roland knows there's no such virus and has deduced that Jariel is being used as a hostage so that Camper will be induced to complete work for Adaska. The CEO angrily asks why Roland wants her to wants her, to which he replies, personal interest. When Adaska asks why his interest can't also be personal, Roland mocks him, saying that his last name is Adaska and Jariel is an offshoot and such pure blood lines would never do such a thing. Adaska concedes the point and is finally out of excuses, so he shows Roland exactly what the secret project is and agrees to bo- let both Roland and Jariel go free and clear once Camper completes his end of the deal. Dyer agrees. Somewhere in the inner room, the escapees of the courageous drop from hyperspace and they raise Arcanian High Command, who were glad to hear from Admiral Kareth. Zane asks if his assist in the escape gets him any leeway from the Admiral, and it of course does not. Because he was also helping himself escape, I guess. Anyway, um, before heading to Arcania, they are hailed by E.G. Vam, who uh, invites them to come to a dying system named Amanoth and receive a chance to win a war that they, are ver- that they very much seem to be losing at this moment. Thus, Onassi, Dallin Morvan, Carrick, and Karath change course and head for a meeting with the Arcanian Legacy. Uh, brief aside, if you can't tell from our retelling here, it's made very clear that at this point, uh, the Republic seems destined to lose the Mandalorian Wars. They aren't protected for the onslaught or uh, the type of attacks like they suffered at Sirocco. On the Arcanian Legacy, meanwhile, Lord Tedeska is about to make the jump from everyday villainy to cartoonist supervillainy. He has an assistant fit Jariel in a revealing outfit. This is a mid-2000s comic book, after all and begins treating her to a nice drink. Jariel is just starting to trust Adaskorp and even Ar- Arco himself before he begins spouting eugenicists about muddling the species and pure-blood supremacy. He goes so far as to say that the Arcanians made a grievous error when they tampered with themselves by creating the offshoots and that the subspecies will be the architects of Arcanian self-destruction. He tells his prisoner that he wants to purify her children, and if it's unclear if this is a metaphor or not, 
but the process was perfected five years ago, and it quite literally purifies the blood of offshoot offspring because the blood of Arcania is growing weak and needs to be strengthened if it is to become the center of the galaxy. Then, in grand fashion, Adaska turns much of the room opaque, and we see it's also an observation deck, looking out upon dozens of exogorths. Yes, the space worm that nearly gets the Millennium Falcon and Empire Strikes Back is here, and it brought a bunch of friends to a party. Adaskorp means to use Camper to mentally control them and then sell that technology to the highest bidder for a spot at making Arcania the new Coruscant, or something like that, with the company as its corporate overlords, of course. Republic, Mandalorians, Jedi, doesn't matter to them who buys it. Superweapon number five in the Old Republic is dozens, possibly more than a hundred, giant space slugs that infinitely reproduce and are directed via mind control. See, the Exogorths are likely old beyond time, possibly having existed in large numbers thousands of years before the founding of the Old Republic. They're simply floating digestive tracts that propagate via fission once they reach a certain size, but they are small in number and rarely seen in the galaxy anymore. They consume elements and minerals that float in the void of space. Uh, most of most of most of the remains of dying dead or dying stars, and then use some sci-fi and then using some sci-fi mumbo jumbo. They sense those type of elements they need to survive via light bouncing across the the galaxy and jump through hyperspace while in hibernation. Many years ago, they congregated in the Amanoth system to consume the elements from the dying star there, which was too small to go supernova, and then they went into hibernation, their existence known solely to a Dascorp, which happened to own the system, and knows all <clears throat> and knows all of this because its brightest scientist, Gorman Vandrake, went inside the mind of a sleeping Exogorth via Arcanian technology and learned how to control the beast, even directing their movements. His interest was purely scientific, but a Dascorp wanted to weaponize it, so he left the company in a junk hauler called The Last Resort and assumed the name Camper. He was the only one who could do it, and now that he's a hostage again, Lord Adaska presumes to make Arcania preeminent in the galaxy. The Exogorths will be outfitted with additional tech to make them jump into hyperspace at will and regulate their bodies and then sold to the highest bidder. Jarile learns all of this through Adaska's long, villainous monologue. She's predictably horrified, especially when she realizes she and Camper especially ho are simply hostages, and Adaska's and Adaska plans his diabolical schemes. Whoa. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something. It's straight up cartoony. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the point of, you know, that's, that's the point of the, uh, I guess of the expanded universes as they are the comic, everything outside the movies, Really, but especially everything outside the movies and TV shows is to be able to do the really weird stuff. And I mean, sometimes it sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Our next arc is the Knights of the Old Republic comic Days of Hate, written by John Jackson Miller and published in 2007. It's another three-issue arc. The characters are pretty much all returning faces here, including Zane, Jariel, Camper, Karth, Admiral... Saul Karath, Dal 
Talon Morvan, Lucian Dre, Arco Adaska, E.G. Vam, Alec, Mandalore the Ultimate, Roland Dyer, and probably a couple of others we've missed. It takes place in the Aminoth system aboard the Arcanian Legacy, and that's pretty much it. That's where it is. It uh, picks up hours after the previous arc, so it's still in the year 3963. We start by entering the Aminoth system alongside the Deadweight, Karth Onasi's personal ship, which carries the few survivors of the Sirocco battle group. Admiral Karoth begins doing his best Zap Brannigan impression, talking grandly about how the Exogoths were old when the stars were young, and then he informs the group that he, Onasi Morvan, and the again shackled Zane Carrick will all board the Arcanian legacy to hear Adaska's offer and find out about those magnificent creatures. On the Arcanian legacy, meanwhile... Jeriel realizes that Adaska has invited all the biggest players to this shitty boat party in an attempt to sell the Exogorth for a place in galactic affairs and uses one of the HK waiting HK-24's guns to try and kill him. Lord Adaska is, is too clever for such a simple trick to work, however, and contacts campers' guards, telling them to torture and kill the old man if they don't hear from the CEO every so often not wanting Camper to die and seeing at least 10 more HK-24s closing in. Jariel relents and she's forced to play host while all of the biggest players in the galaxy arrive to the Arcanian legacy in a dying star or in a dying system for a negotiate for a negotiation they don't know is about to occur. The first to land are Admiral Karath and the other Soroka survivors. As Adaska makes his pleasantries, Karath correctly asks why he'd even be invited. After both his poor performance in scuttling a capital ship, he might not even be an admiral any longer for all he knows. But Adaska says that's the perfect reason because he sees what a good deal the Exogoths might be and what uses they could have against the Republic's enemies. As Zane steps off, Jariel is overjoyed and uses the chance meeting as an excuse to hug and kiss him, knocking him to the floor. This, of course, was a plan to whisper the info about she and Camper being hostages, but it it caused the intended stir for all involved. For his trouble, Zane gets roughed up and then locked in the super ultra big because he's still a wanted Republic prisoner after all. Now, Adeska says, Jariel has two lives riding on her. The next ship lands and it's none other than Alec, formerly known as Squint. He's wearing his trademark red armor and apologizes to, to Adaska that their Avantis leader couldn't make the trip due to an aid mission for the Republic. Adaska has had specifically requested their adventurous leader and is unhappy to get his stand in. Jael, on the other hand, is thrilled. Alec kisses her hand and is sweet to her, and both Adaska and E.G. are left to puzzle out how an Arcanian offshoot knows so many big galactic players. Roland then joins the, joins the fun to say that his guest to say that his guest of honor should be arriving soon. Alex, still furious with the Mandalorians for their war and his torture, asks why Roland left before they made it back to Coruscant. Dyer says that the capital is not the place for a Mando, even a questioner, and so he jumps ship and Jarrell confirms his help since then. Still, Alex seems to suspect something about Roland because Demigol slipped into a coma as they left Flashpoint, one not even Republic doctors can wake him from. Seems like a pretty convenient action since the last person to see Demacol before putting him back in his suit was Roland. 
They both uneasily conclude that it must have been Demigal himself who did this, and Roland exits to await Mandalore's arrival. We also find out that Alec's hair won't grow back after whatever tortures he endured at Demigal's hands, and that he heard about the Padawan massacres and didn't believe Zane was the wrongdoer either. So he seems to trust Carrick and remember what he was told at Flashpoint. Jarile confirms that he's on board and nearly gives away Adaska's whole plan before she's interrupted and Alec is hurried off. Lord Arco goes to find his next guest, and he's expecting another Jedi, but not the one he finds. Lucian Dre awaits. The two briefly trade quips, and it's implied that Dre and Anilia had been romantically involved before, to the point that even Adaska would know. The CEO then says this is a business trip, and sends Ichi to get some of the finest vintage to toast with his old Jedi friend. The two drink. Adaska mentions a niece who was taken into the Jedi Order some years ago, and Lucian is knocked unconscious by something in his drink. He nearly draws his lightsaber, but passes out and is left helpless. Adaska takes Lucian's lightsaber and sends him to the brig because uninvited and unexpected guests can't be allowed to stop him fulfilling his family's dreams. And we're back on the main viewing platform of the Arcanian Legacy where Karth, Morvan, Kareth and Alec all witness the Exogorths being fitted with hyperdrive and body modulation tech. This is when Lord Adaska, with Jarral and Roland in tow, reveals part of his diabolical scheme. He explains how the Exogorths work, and that Adascorp has the means to control them, which initially pleases Kareth because Arcania is in the Republic. He's then angered to hear that they will be required to purchase the weapons. As Adaska's ideas become more grandiose, Kareth uh, sarcastically asks if Arcania, having a senate seat of its own, would be enough. Alec is furious at the offer. At this offer, though, <clears throat> Alec is furious at this offer. Though Adaska does does his best to placate him by discussing allowing the Jedi to use to use the Exogorths because it is as Alec notes, too dangerous for any one government to hold the power to destroy matter on astronomical scales. That's right, we've got a debate about the use of superweapons in Star Wars. Uh, Squint believes the Jedi could responsibly use the beast because the Council foresees nothing but trouble in the coming years, before he's interrupted by Karath pointing out that not only is Alec not the ranking member of his own group, the, the revanchists are actually a splinter of the order. The Admiral, to his credit, has had enough of this bullshit and asked for Adaska's da- bottom line, but E.G. Vam announces the, party, the, the final party's arrival as Mandalore the Ultimate drops out of hyperspace and hails them via hologram. Roland pleads with Jirael, telling her he had to do this because of Adaska promised to free her. Alec and the Republic delegation think it's a trap, but Lord Adaska assures them it's far worse than that. He's allowed Mandalore there under a flag of truce and is not seeking credits for his Exogorth superweapons. No, he's seeking the best offer for Arcania and Adaska as galactic allies. Alec and Karath are in way over their heads now. Far below in the super Ultra Mega Brig, Zane and Lucian are tied to one another on the floor, surrounded by a bunch of bickering HK-24s. As this intergalactic dick measuring contest gets started, Mandalore the Ultimate enters the dais with pomp and circumstance, just as Alec makes a real play to end the war early. 
Undaunted by Lord Adaska's claims of truce, the young and brass Jedi ignites his lightsaber and jumps toward the warlord, but his blow is deflected by a more than capable Mandalore, brandishing a new battle axe. Karath steps in before Mandalore can harm Alec, but the old Tong warlord mocks Karath, saying that his new axe was formed by the by formed from the melting hull of the Admiral's former ship, the Courageous. Adaska steps in, and Cooler Heads prevail just in time to watch a test of the beasts, which is called into the cramped command chamber where Camper is locked in with two Arcanian scientists who will run the test in an HK-24 droid as guard. He's not needed for the test, so he slips away to the spacesuit stow its locker. On the ship, before the test commences, Mandalore and Roland speak briefly. Roland bows and notes that all his vanguard are neo-crusaders now, something that Mandalore attributes to Roland's hero status following his supposed death on Flashpoint. The Mandalore himself added some propaganda about how Roland gave up his questioning and swore fealty to his leader at last and saved many Mandalorians at Flashpoint, but who needs the truth, eh? The neo-crusaders' armor and ideal will help Establish some control over the many new recruits from the new cultures and species, so Mandalore asks if he asks it even if he doesn't like it. The two also agree. Roland will be able to be allowed to leave unharmed if the name Roland stays dead and he turns over his old suit for a random set of Neo Crusader armor. Strangely, when Mandalore addresses him directly, Roland's name is placed within question marks in the dialogue. As they wait for the test to start, Alex suggests to Karath that they just arrest Mandalore there. There and then, but despite his flaws, even the Admiral has read the writing on the wall now. This isn't a criminal matter. It's a far-reaching political power grab that they just happened to get thrown into. Roland, meanwhile, is ready to depart with Jiraiya, but Lord Adaska counters that his deal is not complete and that she can't leave yet. But Adaska is called away by E.G. because apparently some secret in Jiraiya's blood test is big enough to have them miss the test at this pivotal point. Roland goes off to change into his new armor per Mandalore's instructions, and while Jiraiya steps away, she gets a random call on her locator bracelet something that Camper rigged up while he was getting away from the scientist and guard high above. Jarrell is grief-stricken, blaming herself for getting Camper into this mess, but he's forgiven her, saying he trusted the company once too, and mistakes happen. The young offshoot wants to escape, but Camper knows that's impossible now, that Adaska controls the Exogorse and could possibly sell them to the Mandalorians. He encourages his surrogate daughter to rely on Zane, but seems cautious of Roland when each is mentioned. Kemper then apologizes to Jiraiya, saying he should have taught her more about her people, about how awful the how awful the Adaskas are, since he knew both Arco's father and grandfather personally. He says he should have given up studying the slugs because he knew what Adascorp wanted, even if his interest was only scientific. Then he drops the final the final bombshell on Jiraiya, telling her that all the diseases rampant in offshoot areas of Arcania and that were thought to be genetic were actually released by Adascorp as part of the Adasca family and other Arcanians' demented blood purification ideal, quite literally their answer to the offshoot question.
Jarl is enraged, and Tedeska, who has overheard the last bit, interrupting the conversation. The two tussle, with Jarl giving Lord Arco a good uppercut across the chin before he begins smacking Jarl around, calling her a genetic mistake. Adaska seems prepared to abuse Jarl further when Alex steps in, placing his blue lightsaber to Adaska's throat. The young Jedi gives Adaska an ultimatum. Touch Jarl again and he will die regardless of what his boyfriends do to not boyfriends, sorry, what his bodyguards do. <laughs> Squint's reasoning, though, is unknown. He's always been somewhat attracted to Jariel. Was this a move of infatuation? His sense of Jedi duty coming out to stop a hostage from being beaten? Patriarchal domineering cloaked in the vestiges of chivalry? We don't know for sure, so make up your own headcanon. Adaska, not wanting to, you know, die... Stops his attacks, but uses the bracelet community to speak directly to Camper, reminding his employee that Jariel's life depends on successfully completing his contract with a Daskorp. Tied together and with nothing better to do, Zane and Lucian begin bickering. Dre, Dre tries to play the pious master, but Carrick is having none of it. He enumerates Lucian's sins, including the kidnapping and near murder of Zane's father. Lucian was shocked that his former student had any knowledge of the event, so not as all so not all is well in the Covenant camp. Lucian, Lucian takes all of this as more evidence that Zane is falling to the dark side, but Carrick laughs off the suggestion and says to look at all the evil they've done to cover up the initial murders. But Dre, and presumably and the other first watch circle members as well seem to truly believe the force showed them the rogue moon prophecy because they are in the light and their actions to stop the Sith can never take them to the dark. Uh, that's, that's one way to look at it, I suppose. Uh, the topic then switches to Lucian's reason for being imprisoned, which is duly explained and Zane gives him the background info on the slugs. As food is being served, the two use a little teamwork and the force to throw some serving droids, deflect blaster shots with serving trays, and take out all of their guards. Lucian, finding his lightsaber, predictably tries to kill Zane at that moment, but his attacks but his attack is blocked by Zane's frick of embraces, which also short out the lightsaber for some time. Lucian tells Zane he at least had to try for the quick kill, gives his old student a blaster, and they agree to hold off on their grudge until after they find a, a Daska and stop the Exegorse. And on that cliffhanger, we will have to stop for today. Thank you for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will continue our march through the Knights of the Old Republic comics. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to People's History of the Old Republic on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star readings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTORPOD or email us at FOTORPODCAST at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm Atherton KD on Twitter. I'm Matt Luke is amazing on Twitter. Thank you very much, and may the Force be with you. <laughs>